It's good to see all of you here. Um, I don't know if any of you faced the uh, traffic that well, well, not the traffic, but the roadworks that were done along basically everywhere around our city or around our church. And so as uh, many of the people who organized set up were trying to get to this building, um, many of us found it difficult. And so for those of you who made it early, good on you. And um, thank you for being patient with us as we kind of dealt with all the roadworks. Um so just to give a brief review over what we've been talking about, we've been going over a sermon series uh, entitled The Good News About Sin, The Good News About Sin. And last time, we talked about how there are three dimensions of sin, how sin has three different dimensions. Let me see if I can get this to work. No. Oh, there it goes. I felt it. Okay, there are three dimensions to sin. They are involuntary corruption. And the way we described or defined involuntary corruption is that uh, we, are, we all have selfish nature. We are born with this result of sin that entered through Adam. And part of that, um, uh, that fallen nature is a sense of weakness. Uh, it's flawed nature and it just comes along with being born in this fallen world. Then we have voluntary carnality, and that's the intentional bad decisions that we make that lead to a deeper corruption of that involuntary corruption itself. Finally, there's a legal condemnation, or that's our standing with God as sinners due to the two aspects of sin mentioned before. So today, what we're going to do in part two of the series, we're going to move from the problem to the solution. And the first part of the solution that we're going to talk about is that third bit, the legal condemnation. God's solution to legal condemnation. If anything in this talk is interesting or um, if you have any questions, feel free to come out to me afterwards. Uh, there's a book that was, um, there's, a, there's a chapter in a book called, uh, excuse me, there's a pattern chapter in a book uh, written by Richard Davidson, and he's uh, one of the um, kind of authorities of Old Testament scholarship in, in Adventism. So if you're curious to read a bit, feel free to come chat with me. So we're moving from the problem to the solution, and today we're going to be talking about the solution for legal condemnation. The Bible says that the default mode of humanity in birth is corrupted. In other, word, in other words, nobody is born righteous. Nobody is born righteous. But the requirement for a right standing with God is righteousness. So then how do we uh, face this challenge, this difficulty? I'm just going to invite you to join me for a word of prayer before we begin. Father God, as we talk about this important topic and as there's a lot of history involved with our own understanding of this important topic, I just want to pray that your spirit would come down into this place, that you would teach us, that you would uh, illumine our minds, and as we walk away from this place, may we sense um, the intent of your heart as you seek to um, restore humanity. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So the question is, how are we who are corrupt to stand righteous before God? And before I go into this uh, explanation, what I want to do is kind of journey with you through history. And I want to talk about how 
the church, and when I use the word church, I mean historically the church, starting from the Roman Catholic Church all the way to where we are today in modern-day uh, Protestantism and even evangel- uh, Protestantism, I'll just keep it at that, um, how our views have been influenced and shifted as different influential thinkers and writers have contributed to this uh, discussion. So last sermon, we talked about homartiology, which is the study of sin. And today we're going to talk about soteriology, which is the study of salvation. So those are two theological terms. And as the talk continues on, we're going to be covering different terms. And so anyway, if you ever read about this or have a discussion, you'll know what people are talking about. And more importantly, what I'm talking about. (laughs) So the history of soteriology is important because the people who taught and influenced you were influenced by someone who was influenced by the writings and the ideas of the people that I'm going to be talking about. So as I go through history, you may be able to identify different parts and say, oh yeah, I do believe that, or oh, that's where that idea comes from. So here's a development of, or a brief development of soteriology. So the Protestant Reformation mainly occurred in response to the Catholic view of justification. And when I say justification, that just means the idea of being made right before God. So the whole shift in the church happened from this one single idea. So let me share the Catholic view with you. There's an influential Catholic um, theologian. His name was Augustine. And Augustine wrote that justifying righteousness, although completely through the grace of God, exists in the human recipient. And let me go a little bit further. For, ju- uh, for Augustine, justification is God making sinners righteous, uh, righteous by a conversion of their wills. Does that make sense? You are made right by a change in your ability to act right. So you are saved by God, and you need God's grace, but you have to develop righteousness in you. And that combination is what saves you. It's how you are forgiven. It's what gives you the ability to stand before God with confidence. Right? And if you look relationally, this also makes sense where if you do something wrong to your partner, your wife, your husband, your friend, generally they're saying, okay, yes, I get that you're sorry. And yes, I forgive you, but I want you to change. Right? I don't know if you've ever had that discussion. I love you, but don't do that again. Right? Then there was Martin Luther. And in response to this idea of a combination of God's grace and the change of our ability to act in a right way, Martin Luther had a famous saying, and it's simul justice et peccator. And it means at the same time, just and sinner just and sinner. And he was saying that it is only humanly possible to one, express faith, and at the same time, we are weak. And what do we do with that? And he just combined the two and he said, at the same time, just and sinner. So this simultaneous condition refers to the situation where sinner, a sinner is counted legally forgiven by virtue of what Jesus did while yet being fallen or corrupt or a sinner. And I think one of the best verses that describe this is probably Romans 5, verses 8 and 9. So if you have your Bibles, and for those of you who have the World Changer Bibles, 
This is going to be page 907. 907. So this is Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 8 and 9. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Here's how it reads. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. And here you have that combination here. We are fallen. We are sinful. And while in our fallen state, God con- uh, God descends and gives his love by sending Jesus, and we are made right with him. One of Martin Luther's colleagues, his name was Philip Melanchthon, and he took the ideas of Luther and kind of um, explored them and expounded upon them, and he wrote that justification is the divine act of declaring sinners righteous based on the extrinsic or the external imputed righteousness of Christ. In other words, the external accredited goodness of Jesus. Luther and Melanchthon had a contemporary. His name was John Calvin. And John Calvin was heavily influenced by the writings of both Luther and Melanchthon. And uh, in Calvin's Institutes, oh, in Calvin's Institutes, uh, page three, um, cha- uh, paragraphs two and three. I'm just going to read this section for you. John Calvin wrote, A man will be justified by faith when excluded from the righteousness of works. He by faith lays hold of the righteousness of Christ and clothed in it appears in the sight of God, not as a sinner, but as righteous. Thus, we simply interpret justification as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as if we were righteous. And we say that this justification consists in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. To justify, therefore, is nothing else than to acquit from the charge of guilt as if innocence were proved. Hence, when God justifies us through the intercession of Christ, he does not acquit us on a proof of our own innocence, but by an imputation of righteousness, so that though not righteous in ourselves, we are deemed righteous in Christ. He just kind of repeats the same thing over and over and over and over again, but you get the idea. So in the next talk in this series, I'll go into a little bit deeper of Calvin's take on not only about what it means to be made right, but what it means to be right. But today I'm going to draw your attention to the connection between Calvin, Luther, and Melanchthon. So by 1540, there was this general consensus amongst reformers. um, And they emphasized different aspects of this doctrine. But uh, as a whole, Alistair McGrath kind of summarizes um, these four points. And I've kind of mentioned them, but it's worth – I'm just going to repeat the same thing to uh, to hit home this point. Justification is the forensic or legal declaration that the Christian is righteous rather than the process by which he or she is made righteous. It involves a change in status 
rather than in nature. A deliberate and systematic distinction is made between justification, the external act by which God declares the believer to be righteous, and sanctification or regeneration, the internal process of renewal by the Holy Spirit or just change of the heart. Justifying righteousness as imputed to the believer and external to him, not a righteousness that is inherent within him, located within him or in any way belonging to him. Justification takes place through faith on account of Christ. So throughout the Reformation, many well-known reformers became familiar with these writings and adopted them themselves. So there was Jacob Arminius, John Wesley, to name a couple, and many of these, or excuse me, these ideas became a, mar- a part of many Protestant creeds. So as a wave of change took place in the church, uh, Catholicism responded to this Reformation. And at the Council of Trent in 1545, well, it took place from 5045, and it was an ongoing meeting until 1563. Now, keep this in mind. This is an over 10-year-long meeting. I don't know if you've ever been in a church meeting or a board meeting, and you just kind of thought, oh, this thing just is not ending. Can you imagine over 10 years to hash out this one idea? And this is Catholicism's response. The Roman Catholic Church and its decree on justification not only systematically rejects the distinctive tenets of justification by faith alone, but also condemns people who believe in such beliefs. So Thomas Schreiner gives a summary of Trent. He says, at Trent, justification is understood to be a process and is defined in terms of inherent righteousness. In other words, you need to be good to be saved. If you want to experience forgiveness, you need to become good so justification by faith alone is categorically rejected and justification is based in part on human works so john gerstner has this um interesting formula driven way to kind of hit what i've talked about home to summarize what i've talked about so protestants believe that faith leads to justification and then works comes as a result of that The Roman Catholic believes that faith and works leads to justification or forgiveness or salvation. And the common Roman perception of uh, Protestantism is that faith is justification minus works, minus what you have to do. So in summary, justification by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone, is the teaching of the Reformation. And I'm going to just read to you or put up a couple quotes from Luther and Calvin and why they valued this so much. So Luther believed that if we lose the doctrine of justification, we simply lose everything. Notice what he writes. The article of justification is the master and prince, the Lord, the ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrine. It preserves and governs all church doctrine and raises up our conscious uh, yeah our conscious before god without this article the world is utter death and darkness john calvin also considered the doctrine of justification to be the main hinge upon which the church or religion turns notice what he writes for unless you understand first of all 
what your position is before God and what the judgment which he passes upon you, you have no foundation on which your salvation can be laid or on which piety towards God can be reared. This one argument, is justification given or is it a process, changed the church completely. It changed how church service ran. It changed uh, all the little religious aspects of faith. And what birthed from this one idea is the Lutheran church, the Baptist church, the Presbyterian church, the Seventh-day Adventist church. And this one idea um, in the modern era, I would say, has changed the world. So now we enter into this modern era of this dialogue. And there's kind of been this uh, a development of a connection between Protestantism and Catholicism. So uh, there have been a number of pro- uh, high-profile theologians who have left Protestantism and entered into Catholicism. So there's a gentleman by the name of Scott Hahn, and he wrote this book called Rome Sweet Home. And he was a Presbyterian who turned Catholic. And he's a professor at the uh, Franciscan University in Ohio, and he basically rejects the Protestant take of uh, justification and says, no, actually what you do is actually important when it comes to being seen as saved in the sight of God. There's another gentleman by the name of Robert Gundry. He's a Protestant scholar. So he didn't leave Protestantism, but he just is a Protestant, but rejects the teachings of Protestantism. So he's a biblical scholar at Westmont College, and he says the doctrine of Christ's righteousness being imputed needs to be abandoned. So since the 1970s, there's kind of this new perspective on Paul and justification. There are these three influential theologians, E.P. Sanders, James Dunn, and N.T. Wright. And if in your conversations with other Christians, I don't know if those names have come up, but they form a bit of a triumvirate of evangelical scholarship. And these three, they don't claim to uh, present a position that's fundamentally opposed to justification, but they just tend to broaden out the definition of bits of uh, Protestant theology. And um, in some crucial areas, the new perspectives seem to depart from the traditional Protestant understanding. And so uh, I would say, on one hand, with Catholicism, you kind of have this uh, tendency for legalism. In other words, you're saved by what you do. And in this new wave of Protestant theology, there's kind of this, the opposite, where regardless of what you do, it doesn't matter. And I'll spend more time on this in the next talk. But uh, the main areas revolve around what Paul in his writing writings mean when he defines Judaism, law, sin, and salvation. And so today we're going to touch on that. So, the whole point of going through that part of Protestant history is what effect does, a sh- does that shift in Protestantism have? So I don't know if you follow the news, and this is going back a bit, but in 1999, the Lutheran World Federation and Roman Catholic Church issued a joint declaration on the doctrine of justification. And they stated that doctrinal differences no longer warrant any ecclesiastical division. And so think about that. They're saying, okay, we differ on this idea of justification, but let's come together. So this took place October 31, 1999. Now, 
in October 31, 1517, Luther takes his 95 theses and he nails them on the door on that, on that exact same date, stating, this is my departure from the church. It's a huge, huge statement that they issue that um, on October 31st. So what about Adventism? How are we influenced by this history? And within Adventisms, there are a couple theories that have kind of been floating around. And I don't know if it's overt or covert or if people talk about it, but you may, as I share it, you may just feel it. And I'm just going to share uh, one theory or one idea because I have experienced it. I've, been a, I've listened to it and even believed in it for a long time. But I'll just, share, I'll just read it to you. So here's Adventism's own alternative view of from the traditional Reformation view. And this is really important. The, uh, there, there are many people in Adventism who have a different view from the original Protestant reformers. So Adventists accept forensic justification in principle. In other words, we believe that you are saved by faith alone in what Christ has done. So you say, Jesus, I believe you died for me, and therefore I'm saved. We believe that idea fundamentally and principally. Um, but it also includes the process by which Christ actually makes us righteous. And we have coined this term, imparted righteousness of Christ. The imparted righteousness of Christ. So yeah, we talk about the imputed righteousness of Christ, but we also say, and by the way, you need the imparted righteousness of Christ. So we say, we are saved by faith alone, and by the way, it's important to be good. And I don't know if you've ever been confused by that where you thought, man, I just want to have that sense of peace with God. God, how do I know I'm actually forgiven? And the challenge is that we cognitively know God loves me and God forgives me. But we always feel unworthy because we're honest with ourselves. I'm just not good enough, right? So then how do you reconcile that emotional barrier between God loves me and he saves me and I'm not good enough? And the problem is we've kind of married those two ideas of the Protestant Reformation and Catholicism, right? What you do matters. And I'm not saying what you do doesn't matter. We'll cover that in the next talk. But what I'm saying today is the thing that changes your standing with God, the thing that makes you righteous and forgiven is given by God. It has to be a gift. And so I'm going to go and... Um, I actually just did what I was, I was going to say, don't listen to what people say, go read the Bible. And then I just dropped that line. <laughs> Let's go read the Bible together now. <laughs> and so what, what I want to say here is that just reviewing the history, is the Reformation view of justification solid? Should we be going back to Rome in some other direction? Or do we listen to modern theologians? And I, I just want to hit home the point. Regardless of what smart people say, we should turn to Scripture and read the Bible. Because ultimately, when you're by yourself, what you have is the Scripture. And as you read through those pages, you'll find tremendous peace and comfort uh, in those pages, as opposed to what other people say. Right? So we're going to look through some Scripture together. And what I'm going to do is... Um, over the past two talks, I've emphasized the writings of Paul um, as regarded as the most in-depth explanation of uh, salvation. And what I'm going to do is Paul highlights 
Old Testament stories to kind of build his case. And so I'm just going to go through those Old Testament stories, and we'll kind of flush out those ideas together. Oops. So Genesis 1 to 3 and Romans 4 to 5. And what I'm going to invite you to do is in page 906, that's kind of Romans 4 and 5. And we're going to be going through the book of Romans. So just keep your hand there. I've just folded the page here because I'm going to be referring back to it. And we're also going to be referring to the book of Genesis. And I'm just, because it's a talk, because it's a sermon, I'm going to narrate and refer to different ideas. And I realize I'm assuming knowledge. And for some of you, if this is new information, um, feel free to contact me or come to me and just say, hey, can you explain that bit a little bit more? But just for the sake of public communication, I'm going to make references to many things. So we're starting in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to jump around uh, from verses 12 to 16. So starting in verse 12, what Paul is going to do is he's going to compare and contrast Adam and Jesus. And the reason why these two individuals are important in Paul's mind is because sin enters through Adam. And so the solution then is found in Jesus Christ. And he's going to um, just highlight the beginning of the problem. And then we're going to go to Genesis and explore that a little bit. So Genesis, excuse me, Romans chapter 5, verses 12. And then we're going to jump to 15 and 16. When Adam sinned, Sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Verse 15, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift led to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. Okay, so Adam's decision affects humanity, and what Paul does is he links up the solution directly to the problem. And the reason why I think this is important is because as we read through Genesis 1 to 3, we're going to see the entrance of the problem, but then God immediately coming up and providing a solution right next to that problem. And it isn't explicitly stated, but as you read through the passage and think through a few concepts, I think that God communicates the message of salvation even amidst, in the middle of that problem, the beginning of that problem. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And in Genesis, Adam and Eve partake of the fruit, and immediately as they partake of the fruit, they realize uh, they've disobeyed God's command to not eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what we're going to see is God then pronouncing these series of judgments to the serpent, to Adam, and to Eve. And we're going to look at verse 15 in that bit of uh judgment and then i will even go further and say part of the solution <clears throat> so the judgment goes as so and this is god speaking i will cause hostility between you and the woman and he's speaking to the serpent here between your offspring and her offspring he will strike your head 
and you will strike his heel. So, as you read through this, notice how how God speaks to the serpent Adam and to Eve. He pronounces judgment on them. And as you read through this, there's kind of like this court hearing that goes on where God asks all three what happened. They respond, and then he gives judgment. And so there's almost like a, a fairness to it. Rather than God just coming and then sending a lightning bolt, he hears them out. There's this court hearing. Um, there, there's a, uh, a judgment setting, if you will, or a legal process that's happening. So notice here in the judgment, it says that he, uh, um, being the woman's offspring, the woman's descendants, shall bruise the serpent or Satan's heel. And what's being communicated is that there is this representative of humanity who willfully steps upon the serpent knowing something bad is going to happen. Uh, I don't know if uh, you've seen this. Uh, there's this video that's been going along on, uh, going around in Facebook. There's a young boy who grabs a snake by its tail, and he's he knows he's doing a silly thing, right? And so he's kind of like um, he's kind of like trying to get to the head of the snake, but he starts at 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 the, at the tail of it, and as he gets closer, the snake turns around and. Um, bites his loincloth, like he's in a loincloth, and the kid kind of drops his loincloth and then runs away. And I, I didn't explain it very well, but it's a little bit comical. So he like he knows this is a bad idea, and as soon as he knows I've lost control of the situation, he, he runs away naked. Um, so when, when this judgment scene is being pronounced, he's saying this representative, this woman's seed is going to step on the serpent willfully, knowing this is going to hurt me. And I think the powerful portrait that's being given here is that there is this substitution, this sacrifice that's being portrayed. The one who's doing the stepping knows I'm going to get hurt, but I'm going to do it anyway. Then if you go to verse 21, this idea of substitution and sacrifice continues on. And it isn't explicit, but i um, just going to explore a few ideas with you. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Notice here the passage or the chapter kind of comes to this conclusion. It says, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And the reason why this idea is important is because there's this idea of Clothing representing something else. Clothing representing something else. And if you look at the story of Adam and Eve, notice um, as they are, as they realize they're naked, they run away and they clothe themselves with fig leaves. And I don't know how big the fig leaves were back in the Garden of Eden, but like, I don't know how well leaves are going to cover you, right? But they do anyway. And the point of this is what they do to cover themselves is inadequate. What they do to cover themselves is inadequate. And if you look um, at verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. So the nakedness involved a sense of being unmasked. There's this guilt and this shame that's attached to this idea of being naked. And my point is God's act of clothing Adam and Eve is not just a covering of their physical nudity, but a covering of their guilt, their shame. And 
something else that's communicated is that they were animal skins, right? It doesn't say that God pulled out cotton and then gave them a robe, right? The clothing comes from an animal. In other words, there is a death of an innocent animal that is being implied as they are covered with this clothing. If you go to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, and Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, for those of you who have the World Changer Bibles, it's page 600. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. Isaiah 61, verse 10. It reads, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in the robe of righteousness. And throughout scripture, there's this idea of being clothed as communicating you are made right. And so as you look through the story of Adam and Eve, they haven't actually done anything good at that point in time. Right? They haven't actually, um, they haven't repented. They've just run away. And what we see here is God giving them clothing. We see God giving this message that, Eve, you're going to give birth to this child that will come and destroy what the serpent has done. So if you look at what Paul does in Romans 5, going back to Romans 5, he accurately draws the implication for justification by faith, connecting Adam and Jesus. So Romans chapter 5, going back to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 18, 19, and 21. Paul writes, Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Jumping to verse 21. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So justification is a judicial or legal declaration of acquittal. It's the opposite of condemnation, and it's not an ethical condition. Justification is a free gift, not a matter of human works. There's one other Old Testament example that I'm going to highlight, and Paul uses this example to describe righteousness, and that's the example of Abraham. So if you go to page 13, Genesis chapter 15, I'm just going to briefly refer to this, and I won't spend as much time on the story of Abraham. But Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham has just conquered these different kings. He's kind of afraid for his life. And God gives him this reassurance, Abraham, I've chosen you to be uh, the father of a great nation. And if you look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, as soon as God gives him this promise, it says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. 
So there's a clear statement of the basic features of justification in this story. First, I want to highlight that Abraham was not made righteous. Right? He wasn't made righteous. He was accounted righteous. Abraham was not made righteous. He was accounted righteous. In other words, righteousness, uh, he was declared. He was imputed with not impart, uh, excuse me, <laughs> he was imputed with God's righteousness. He wasn't changed because of his righteousness. If you read from Genesis chapter 15 to Genesis chapter 21, you see how human, how human Abraham is, and you see how flawed he is. And I'm just going to highlight three things. I won't have you turn to it. I'll just narrate to you. But God promises Abraham and Sarah that they're going to be the, the, the parents of this of this uh, great nation and abraham and sarah really struggle with this they try to have children they're not able to have children and after many uh after being barren for a long period of time sarah goes to abraham and says hey just marry my servant hagar and hagar is not a part of the original plan hagar is not a part of the original plan and if abraham were righteous and faithful he would have just said you know what god promises to us Let's just keep trying. It'll happen. But he doesn't. He goes, okay, and he marries Hagar. And then you keep reading, and then as Abraham and Sarah are kind of traveling through that part of their world, they go to uh, Egypt, and they catch the attention of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh sees Sarah and says, wow, you are beautiful. Who is this woman? And as the question comes to Abraham, Abraham goes, she's my sister, right? Now, husbands, or excuse me, wives, girlfriends, how would you feel if your partner said, she's my sister? <laughs> Here you go, take her. <laughs> How's that going to affect the relationship? And more importantly, how are they going to have children if she's the wife of a pharaoh? And if that weren't bad enough, God, through his mercy, kind of changes the circumstances, and Abraham gets Sarah back. And then there's another king by the name of Abimelech. And Abimelech sees Sarah and says, wow, this woman is beautiful. You know, who, do you, who do you belong to? And who are you? And Abraham says, she's my sister. And he gives her again. And my whole point is, Abraham is flawed and weak. But in chapter 15, at the beginning of the story, God says, you're righteous. You're righteous. Abraham was justified before he worked. Abraham was justified before he worked. And when you look at the uh, original language, there's some interesting implications here. And it implies that, or excuse me, it states that Abraham didn't just give an intellectual response and say, okay, God, I believe you. When it says that Abraham believed, the, the original language says that he relationally put his trust in the Lord and he enters into a personal, intimate trust relationship with God. And God says, you trust me, I give you forgiveness. I give you justification. I give you a right standing before me. So in closing, I'm just going to have us go to Romans 4. Romans 4. And we're going to look at verse 4 and 5. It says, When people work, 
Their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And there are many times where there are moments where I don't feel worthy. And I love this verse because it plainly says, to those who do not work, they are forgiven. Right? So I'm not saved by what I do. I'm not lost by what I do. I'm not saved by what I do. I'm not lost by what I do. And something that helps me kind of get over that emotional barrier is repeating over and over, to him who does not work, to him who does not work. And I find uh, there are moments where I just experience peace. God, you do give forgiveness. In the words of Martin Luther, I close today's talk. Simul justice et peccator. We are at the same time just and sinner. May this bring you peace as you look for that right standing with God. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we come before you today as humans, as people who are less than perfect. And Father, we acknowledge that um, it is in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that we find peace and confidence in a right standing with you. And so, Father, I pray in those moments where we are discouraged by our own uh, failures and the failures of those around us, may what you've done bring peace in our lives. Um, And, Father, I just pray that uh, as we discuss um, and as we continue on to enjoy uh, this time and this period of rest that you've given to us today, that uh, we might be able to share and reflect and grow in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.